you will find Judges 15 on page 249. So open a Bible, get something to write some notes on, and uh, you'll be in good shape today, okay? I was in sixth grade. My brother Rory was in fifth grade. We rode our bikes everywhere. And my brother Rory had this sweet accessory. It was a red and white checkered seat cover. And what made it so cool was that that red and white checkered seat cover also matched his red and white checkered vans. It was some high-level accessorizing for a fifth-grade boy, and it was fantastic. He peaked way too early, I'm telling you now. And so this thing was super cool, and one day the seat cover came up missing. We lived in an apartment complex that wasn't necessarily the pinnacle of humanity and morality, and we figured someone stole it. And sure enough, one day we're at our local swimming pool, and the neighborhood bully, his name was Corey, he came by on his bike, and on his seat was a red and white checkered seat cover. So Rory and I told the bully what we thought about his life choices. And then the bully told us what he thought about our faces. We got out of the pool, and the bully and his buddies started to circle me on their bikes. And my only weapon was a damp towel. And so I rolled it up. And it was, it's the only time in my life I've got a towel to pop on the first try. And it was on point. I hit the bully right in his side, instant red mark. He came off of his bike, and then he walked over to me. And he punched me in the nose. <laughs> and blood started to pour out. And I covered my face. And then he pounded my own hands into my own face, smearing my own blood all over my face. In the meantime, my brother Rory had run off screaming, <laughs> left me all alone. See, here's the problem. I, I had fought a lot, but it was just with my brothers. And we had certain rules, right? Like no face shots. That was the one rule. Body shots all day long. No face shots in our types of fighting. But this bully apparently did not fight according to our rules. He had his own set of rules, which were pretty effective, if you ask me. I just I didn't know how to fight. A, a couple of weeks later, my brother Rory walked out of his bedroom and he said, hey, look what I found, my bicycle seat cover. I let him know how I felt about that. I didn't know how to fight. Christians are the same way. We are, believe it or not, fighters by nature, yet so few of us really know how to fight. What do I mean by we are fighters. I mean this. You and I as followers of Jesus Christ are advancing against sin and all of its decay in the lives of people around us. We have to be fighters because of this. And, and why is it that God would want you to be a fighter? He wants you to be a fighter because souls hang in the balance. And our enemy, Satan, will not relinquish those souls with a pretty please. We win souls and we bring people back from the decay of sin and death. We do it with rigor, with fighting in the name of Jesus Christ, with the gospel, the sword of God as our weapon. 
Christianity is not for sleepers. It is not for the self-serving. It is not for spiritual pacifists. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you are a fighter. And you are fighting for the lost and for the voiceless and for those who suffer injustice, for those who are mistreated due to the color of their skin. You, Christian, you are a fighter. And this morning, Samson, in Judges chapter 15, is going to teach us how to fight. Do you remember the setting? We've been with Samson. This is our third Sunday with Samson now. And the big setting is this. God's people, Israel, have turned their back on God and they've worshipped false gods. And because of this, God has handed them over to an enemy nation, the Philistines. For 40 years, the Philistines oppress God's people. They elevate their god, Dagon, and they put down God's people for 40 years. Now, in our study of Judges this summer, we've seen a similar cycle. This has happened over and over again. And every time, God's people will at some point have a moment of clarity and turn to God and ask for help. That doesn't happen this time around. Remember, at the beginning of chapter 13, it's not that Israel turns to God for help. God, out of His radical grace, acts for the deliverance of His people. And so, Samson's mother, by God's grace, experiences this miraculous conception. Samson is born. He is the deliverer that God chose before he was born. And therefore, you would think that this guy, picked by God, would be awesome. But remember what we learned last week in chapter 14. Samson is a hot mess. He is immature. He violates his religious vows. He is impulsive. He is arrogant. And still, God works in spite of all of Samson's sinfulness. He works for the sake of his people, Israel. And God empowers Samson to fight. So my goal this morning is this. I want to teach you how to fight. Now, I'm not talking about actual physical violence. If I were to get in a fight today, it would involve a lot of slapping and high-pitched screaming. That's not my type of fighting. But I mean this, church. We have to advance against sin and its power in the lives of precious people around us. To do that, you've got to have a fighter's mentality. And Samson's going to show us four factors, four things we have to know in order to fight and win. When we last left Samson at the end of chapter 14, his wedding had derailed. His bride-to-be was given to another man, and Samson is not aware of this when he shows back up at his supposed father-in-law's house at the beginning of chapter 15. Follow along with me as I read. The drama continues. Later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. 
He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. When the Philistines asked, who did this? They were told, Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him from the, from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came forwards, came toward him shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, with the donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them. With the donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath-Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called en Hakore, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. This is a chapter for fighters. I want to show you in this passage four things you have to know in order to be an effective fighter. If you're taking notes, first thing you've got to know is this. You've got to know the outcome. Verses 1 through 8, you've got to know the outcome. That seems counterintuitive. Don't we have fights in order to determine outcomes? Well, in this instance, I'm telling you the outcome is already determined. So chapter 15 opens with this terribly awkward scene. Samson decides, you know what? I miss my bride-to-be. It's time to go visit her. So uh, he does the most romantic thing he knows to do. He gets a baby goat. And he takes it to her house. If you're a single man this morning, you might want to try a baby goat. I don't know. What do you got to lose? Everyone loves a baby goat. He takes the goat, goes to her house, knocks on the door, door opens. He says, I'm going to my wife's room. He's not there to play board games. The dad says, I thought for sure when all the drama went down that you hated her, you took off. You didn't say anything. We haven't heard from you. So I gave her to this other guy in your groom's party. 
wouldn't you rather have her younger sister anyway? She's much prettier than this. I mean, what an awful, awkward scene that unfolds here at the beginning of, of chapter 15. Samson is irate at this. And so uh, he goes out and, hey, you've got to give him points for creativity. He captures 300 foxes. I wouldn't have thought of this, neither would you. Catches these foxes, ties their tails together, attaches a torch, and those torches go through their fields, their wheat fields, their vineyards, their olive groves. It's mass destruction. And, and look, these are subsistence farmers by and large. If they lose a large harvest, that's a year-long consequence So there's this massive destruction that takes place. It's a strange scene. And it might be hard for you and I to really make sense of it, but here's what I look for in Bible study to help me make sense of hard passages. I look for some sort of structure or some sort of pattern, and there is indeed a regular pattern that goes throughout the story of Samson from the beginning of chapter 14 all the way to Samson's death at the end of chapter 16. So let's just... Look at the pattern as it unfolds in the passages we've read so far. So if you remember back in chapter 14, Samson poses a riddle to his new Philistine friends in his bridal party. They get the answer to the riddle out of his wife by threatening her with death. And so you would say, point to the Philistines. They answer the riddle. But then what happens? Samson goes down and kills 30 Philistines in order to fulfill the wager he made with this riddle. So what was a point for the Philistines now becomes a point for Samson. Then here in chapter 15, there's peace and quiet. Samson's former fiancé is given to another another man. That's a point towards the Philistines. But then Samson shows up. He finds out his wife is not his wife. He lights the fields on fire. It's the point back to Samson. In verse 6, the Philistines, they counter their fiery fields by lighting Samson's bride-to-be and her husband on fire. The point goes back to the Philistines. But then Samson attacks, and in verse 8, he slaughters many of them. The point goes back to Samson. In chapter 16, the, the pattern continues in a grander way. And, and what's the pattern? The pattern is this, that every Philistine success is followed by a Samson rebuttal. There's never a point in Samson's story where the Philistines enjoy true sustained success. Failure is always close behind. Every time the Philistines think they have won, failure is on the horizon. They scheme and they attack, but they are never the winners. They lose every time they go against Yahweh's servant. And that's the way it is for every opponent of the Lord. Every success is a temporary success. Every victory is a precursor to defeat. If you're going to be a fighter, you have to know how the fight ends and you already know it. The outcome is already determined. The opponent has already lost. It is not in doubt. Christ is the victor. So many people have this idea that God is locked in a battle with Satan and it's 50-50 as to who's going to come out ahead, who's going to win that fight. And you know what? If all we had was a dead Jesus on Good Friday, if that was all we had, that might be the case. Victory might hang in the balance. But don't forget, we gather every Resurrection Sunday. 
because death is a defeated enemy. Satan's outcome is already settled. You know the outcome before you take the first swing. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He, he takes the truth and the power of Christ's death and resurrection, and then he bows up against our great enemy, and he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. So, brothers and sisters, your enemy is already destroyed. The outcome is already determined because Christ died and he rose again. And so here's a list of your enemies that already have tombstones. Addiction, grief, cancer, Alzheimer's, unforgiveness, anger, and bitterness. Brothers and sisters, you have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ over these things. Therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. You know the outcome of this fight already. There's a second thing you've got to know if you're going to be a fighter. You've got to know your enemy. In verses 9 through 11, this unbelievable scene unfolds. It helps us know who our enemy is. So Samson has lit the fields on fire. The Philistines have murdered Samson's wife and her, husband, her, her father. Samson retaliates by slaughtering many of those Philistines. And then he goes and hides in a cave. As he's hiding in the cave... The Philistines, the bad guys, they, their army picks up and moves camp into Israelite territory. So look at what happens. Verse 10, the people of Judah ask. Now, the people of Judah, that's God's people. That's Israel, all right? The people of Judah ask these Philistines, why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Verse 11, then 3,000 men from Judah, so that's 3,000 Israelites, these are Samson's people, they went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and they said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? And he answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. There's a bit of juvenile humor in this scene. The Israelites asked the Philistines, why are you doing this? We're only doing to Samson what he did to us. Then they ask Samson, why are you doing this? And he says, I'm only doing to them what they've done to me. It's very petty. And in the midst of those silly responses, in between those silly responses, is an incredibly sad statement on behalf of the people of Israel, God's people. Don't miss what they say to Samson there towards the end of verse 11. They show up at the cave and they say, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? So quiz time. According to the Israelites, who is the bad guy in Samson versus the Philistines? Samson's the bad guy. He's disrupting the status quo. 
Sure, it's been 40 years of oppression, but still we're here and we're alive and I've got a place to live and a tiny field to take care of and I've got all these false gods I can worship and here comes Samson messing everything up. So for Israel, Samson is the bad guy and they come to the defense of their Yahweh-denying oppressors. Samson, you're upsetting our oppressors. They're our rulers. I mean, sure, we don't agree with all of their policies and actions, but it's important that you not put us in jeopardy. We like things just the way they, they are. So we took a vote, Samson. We took, we took a vote. And the results are in. 3,000 of us to one of you says, leave these guys alone. Quit putting us in peril. It is tragic when God's people make allies out of God's enemies. We don't often think about God having enemies, but He does. His enemies, our enemies, are not flesh and blood. Muslims are not our enemies, nor are refugees or immigrants or any member of the LGBTQ community. When our lives bump up against theirs, we engage them not with vitriol and hatred, but with love, compassion, sacrifice, and the gospel story. But God has enemies. They are sinful ideologies, actions, beliefs, and words that God stands in clear opposition to. We've seen this illustrated in Charlottesville over the weekend. So let us be clear today. The kingdom of God stands in diametric opposition to the alt-right, to white supremacy, and racism of every kind. Are racists our enemy? No. Flesh and blood is not our enemy. There is hope for the racist who would turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. And I know because I was one. I wasn't a racist of the alt-right variety, but make no mistake, even as a boy, I told awful jokes and I used gross words and I thought ignorant, hateful thoughts about people who were different from me. And God, by His grace, saved me from my sin. And He has set me on a path to repentance that has come sometimes in leaps and still as an adult man, it is coming step by step as I learn to listen better and better to black brothers and sisters and those in society who feel they have no voice. I'm still learning these things. So there's hope for you if you look in your heart and you see someone who hates people of a different color or a different nationality. The problem in so many of our churches, though, it's not that we make room for white supremacy, but that we willfully ignore the realities of racism in our nation. When white Christians refuse to listen to black voices who tell us that things are not right, we make our bed with the enemy. So church, we must fight the fights that matter. We're accustomed to fighting. 
Stephen read to us from Philippians chapter 4 this morning. The church has always been full of fighters. We've just always turned on each other. Euodia, Syntyche, they fought, we fight. We fight each other over matters of opinion and personal preference that have not one bit of influence on the proliferation of the gospel except to silence our voices and destroy our witnesses. When we fight, we fight side by side, not nose to nose. And if we're going to fight, we've got to fight the fights that matter. Here are some fights that are worth fighting. We must never tire of fighting for unborn boys and girls. And in that fight, we must do all we can to care for and support the women who have chosen abortion. They are precious to us. Their lives matter also. And we must work and vote and act against the social, economic, and political conditions under which abortion flourishes. You ought to carry a holy anger regarding the fact that there are more kids in Massachusetts foster care than there are families to care for them. Is there not a church in Massachusetts? You ought to carry a holy anger on behalf of abused and neglected and hungry children right here in our own communities. You ought to carry a holy anger on behalf of precious men and women who battle mental health issues without easy access to proper medication and counseling. And you ought to weep at the reality that the majority of our neighbors, our neighbors, will die having not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and not put their trust in the one who loves them so much. We've got to fight the right fights in the way of Christ. You've got to know your enemy. You've got to love the broken. But we must fight. So you know the outcome and you know the enemy. A third thing we learn about fighting from Samson, know the odds. Verses 12 through 17. Here's the big battle as it unfolds. The Israelites tie up Samson. They bring him out. The Philistines ambush the scene. Samson rips off the ropes. And then he picks up, the Bible tells us, a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Again, incredible creativity. And he takes this unconventional weapon. We're told the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And any time in Samson's story the Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson, destruction follows. And he does just that. With the jawbone of a donkey, he kills a thousand people. When the battle is done, Samson does probably what you would do. He composes a song in verse 16. (laughs) The Ballad of Jawbone Hill. With a donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I've killed a thousand men. Now, I've read this morning from the New International Version. If you're using a pew Bible, it says the same thing. If you have a different translation it might say something a little different in that first verse. (laughs) With a donkey's jawbone, your Bible might say, I have made a heap of them. Something along those lines. Here's the discrepancy. In Hebrew, not because I know this firsthand, but because smart people tell me. In Hebrew, the word for donkey and the word for heap or pile are essentially the same word. They're almost identical. So look at what a wordsmith Samson is. So creative here with the song that he writes. Still, although it's creative, I I don't think it's going to make our Sunday morning rotation. I hope that doesn't hurt your feelings. 
Now, who would common sense say is going to win the battle when it is Samson in a donkey's jawbone versus a, a thousand angry and armed Philistines? Who are you putting your money on in that fight? But there's something you're forgetting when you assess the odds one to the other. You are never outnumbered when the omnipotent one is on your side. Samson doesn't win because of the lethal nature of donkey's jawbones. He wins because one man with Yahweh is greater than a thousand men with Dagon. You see, it was the Philistines who were outnumbered that day. Outpowered, outgunned. They never stood a chance. And don't we face foes that sometimes seem so large and so insurmountable? Don't we feel so small in the face of the enemies against our faith? Addiction seems like a relentless enemy. Grief is a massive enemy. Bitterness is a resilient enemy. We are so small in the face of these enemies, but Christian sister, Christian brother, don't you ever be afraid of them. Jesus died and rose again, so it is not a fair fight. In Christ, you have all you need. You don't even need a donkey's jawbone. Samson experienced the covering of the Spirit at times of battle. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Continually with you, that is no small thing. The odds are in your favor and against the enemy. We've got to know the odds, know the outcome, know our enemy One last thing we've got to know in order to fight well. You've got to know your provider. Verses 18 through 20, you've got to know your provider. The whole scene becomes very silent in verse 18. The battle's over, and now Samson is thirsty, and in his thirst he gets a wee bit dramatic with God. Look at verse 18. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord. You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. And so the spring was called in Hakore. I don't want you to miss this detail. The God who empowered Samson to fight against the Philistines is the God who takes care of his thirst. How often do we just relegate God for the big problems? But here, God takes care of problems big and small for his troubled servant, Samson. Oftentimes we think that endurance is going to come only from us. If I'm going to fight this fight, it's got to be in my own power, my own strength. And so, if you're familiar with Philippians 4.13... We'll rip it out of its context, mangle it a bit, beat our chest. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Then we take a few steps and fall down depleted. I read an article the other day about rock star Alice Cooper. Yeah. And he was recently cleaning out a storage unit. And they pulled out this thick cardboard tube and inside was a painting he forgot he owned back in the 70s when he was not of clear mind or body 
he bought a painting from his friend Andy Warhol, stuck it in this tube, threw it in storage, and forgot about it until just a couple of months ago. And that painting has an estimated value of $10 million. <laughs> what? Just like Alice Cooper had no idea the treasure he was sitting on, so it is with so many Christians who forget the resources we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. You have no idea the treasures you have access to when God is your provider. God's provision for Samson was so perfect that Jawbone Hill was given a new name. In your footnotes, it ought to say Collars Springs. So that little patch of real estate wasn't known so much for the slaughter as it was for the sustainer. And if he did that for Samson, won't he do that for all those who belong to his son, Jesus Christ? You better believe it. So here's what we've learned this morning. When you fight, there's some things you have to know, things that are just settled. You've got to know the outcome. You've got to know your enemy. You've got to know the odds. You've got to know your provider. And so it begs the question for all of us today, do I know the provider? Do I know the God who delivers his people, the God who puts down evil? Do I know the God who's going to take care of me? God has provided for you in a grand way. All of us have this need that we cannot meet. You see, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. All of us are sinners against the holy God. And that sin requires a punishment. You are intended to pay the price for your sin with your own death. That is just, it is right, it is awful. And you didn't cry out for help. And you didn't make a deal with God. And while you were still dead in your sin... God the Son, Jesus Christ, He took on flesh and He came to us. And He died on the cross in your place. The sinless Son of God took your sin so that you could have His life. He died. Three days later, He rose again. If He rose from the dead, that means that everything He said is true. And that means the path to eternal life is through Him and Him alone. And he promises you this, if you will trust in who he is and what he's done, you'll be saved. Sin forgiven, new life given to you, eternity secured in glory with our Father. He calls to you today, don't fight against God, the one who loves you and has given everything for you. Surrender. Say yes to Jesus Christ. Be lifted from your death today and receive eternal life. And what about you, Christian? You facing a battle today? You bet you are. But you can exhale because you know the outcome. And you don't have to fear because you know the enemy. And you can be brave because you know the odds. And you're going to make it because you know the provider. An old dead Scottish preacher, a guy named Robert Murray McShane, once said this, it's not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And so it is for you. Brothers and sisters, 
fight the good fight. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word to us this morning. As we have sung it, read it, prayed it, studied it, and now we bend to it. Holy Spirit, let us hear your voice and say yes to your call. Let us say yes to Jesus and put our trust in him for our salvation. Let us bend to this word and find strength for weak knees, courage for our guts when we face the hard day. Let us find in you our endurance, our refreshment, our help, our victory. So we praise you, the God who has fought and won for us. Lord, empower us now to go with you on behalf of lives you love, people who bear your image, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.